Welcome to the second part of our episode on Princess Diana. If you missed our last episode, part 1, then I suggest going back and giving it a listen. In that first part, we looked at the extraordinary day of Diana's funeral and considered the crisis facing the British monarchy at that time. Diana had a troubled marriage to Prince Charles, and we found out about the secret recordings of adulterous affairs leaked to the press as part of the so-called War of the Waleses. Now we pick up our story in the period after the breakup of their marriage, when Diana started to spread her wings as an independent and controversial figure who posed an unprecedented challenge to the royal family and the British establishment. We will travel with Diana through her last hectic night in Paris. We will witness the crash that claimed her life and uncover many of the strange goings-on and unresolved questions that continue to feed into conspiracy theories that the death of the princess was no accident. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Before there was the hit Netflix show House of Cards, set in a fictional White House with Frank Underwood as president, there was a British version of the show. This original British House of Cards was made by the BBC in the early 1990s and set in the backstabbing world of Conservative Party politics in the House of Commons. In it, a ruthless politician, Francis Urquhart, rises from chief whip to prime minister through a combination of blackmail, dirty tricks and murder. You know, all the black arts of top-flight politics on both sides of the Atlantic. In the second season of the British version, which was broadcast in 1993, we see Prime Minister Urquhart come into conflict with a new king. The new king is clearly supposed to be a version of Prince Charles, with his mannerisms and peculiar mode of speech. House of Cards really struck a chord with the British public at the time, The show felt very close to aspects of the real-life drama that was unfolding in the House of Windsor. You'll remember that last week we were talking about how the breakup of Prince Charles and Princess Diana was THE media sensation in the UK in 1993. Well, there is a scene in the TV series broadcast that year that really mirrors the intrigues that swirled around the royal family at the time. In that scene, Prime Minister Urquhart's ruthless political fixer, a man appropriately named Stamper, has a secret rendezvous with a princess who has recently divorced a member of the royal family. Stamper is looking for information, potential blackmail material to use against the king. He points out that after her divorce, the princess received a substantial financial settlement. It wasn't out of affection or compassion, was it? Stamper asks sarcastically. They were purchasing your silence, your good behaviour. Stamper suggests to the princess that there is a story that she could tell about what goes on within the royal family. He intimates that it might be such a sensational story that she could command any price for it, any price you cared to name. It might even be so scandalous that it could bring down the monarchy itself. The princess replies, They said that, if I said anything, I'd have a very bad accident. Ah, 
Stamper responds, not at all surprised. And did you believe them? The princess says, yes, she did believe the threat. Stamper nods sincerely. I think you were very wise. After the scandals of the Andrew Morton biography, The Squidgy Tape, and Camilla Gate, followed by the announcement of the official separation of Charles and Diana, the monarchy was on shaky ground. The House of Windsor might sometimes look like a weird reality TV show, but the Queen is the head of state, and her family occupies a significant constitutional, diplomatic and ceremonial role in British society. Therefore, the private lives of the royal family are not, and never truly can be, private. For the monarchy to play its peculiar role at the pinnacle of British society, then it has to project the right image. The royal optics were not good in the 1990s, especially for the Prince of Wales. He had been very publicly and humiliatingly shown to have put his adulterous relationship with the married Camilla Parker Bowles above his marriage to Diana, and he had gotten a divorce for his comeuppance. There was speculation, practically an assumption, that Charles could never become king, that the crown should instead pass directly to his son, Prince William. Meanwhile, Diana, feeling liberated from what she considered to be the stifling atmosphere of the royal family, was determined to forge a new identity and to craft her own image as a strong, independent woman. Part of that new life for Diana was having the ability to publicly date men that she actually liked. She had certainly had affairs during her marriage, which had been hushed up by courtiers until the squedgy tape came out. But as a separated and then divorced woman, she was able to achieve much more freedom in her personal life. Equally important to Diana was to continue with her charitable and humanitarian work. As we have already seen, Diana was one of the most high-profile supporters of people with HIV-AIDS, at a time when there was still a lot of ignorance and prejudice about the disease. She also became a passionate advocate for an international ban on the use of landmines. While she was still married, Diana had met many victims of landmines in former war zones, in particular children who had lost limbs as a result of accidentally stepping on or picking up the mines. Her advocacy for a ban on landmines had brought Diana into another conflict with the Queen and the British government. The issue was deemed to be too political for a member of the royal family to be involved in. It was okay for Diana to visit children who had been maimed by the landmines. That's the sort of heartwarming charity stuff that royals are supposed to do but it was quite another thing for the Princess of Wales to actually try to do something about it. Given that landmines were part of the arsenal of the British Army, and that arms manufacturers make a lot of money churning them out, then Diana's championing of an international ban looked like she was getting involved in an overt political campaign. This is harem for the British royal family, they are only permitted to deploy what might be termed soft power. This might involve subtly advocating for this or that personal hobby horse or charitable cause, but the royals are expected to refrain from publicly expressing their own opinions, and they are certainly not allowed to meddle in any specific aspect of government policy. Without that delineation, the British constitutional system simply cannot function. Diana challenged this system. In fact, her willfulness threatened to throw a giant wrench into the works. She had grown increasingly independent since her separation from Prince Charles in 1993, but she was still a member of the royal family, and therefore still under the protection and the watch of the British security agencies and the palace courtiers. But when her divorce was finalised in 1996, she slipped from the orbit of the royal family and its handlers. Her status in public life became unclear, and nobody knew how to deal with such a figure. 
The only thing that was clear? Diana now had considerably greater latitude to pursue any issue as she saw fit. This made Diana, as several of her detractors said at the time, a loose cannon. This was a constitutionally unprecedented situation for the British establishment. Diana had all the prestige of royalty, but without its constraints. She could command the attention of the whole country, and the whole world, just by showing up. She was the star of the show, and she made the rest of the royals, even the Queen herself, seem rather tired and, well, second-rate. Of course, being the most famous woman in the world costs a lot of money. Upon her divorce, Diana was given a large financial settlement from Prince Charles. She was also allowed to continue to live for free in her royal apartment in Kensington Palace. The Queen had stripped Diana of her title, HRH, or Her Royal Highness. It was an act widely interpreted to have been a petty slight against her former daughter-in-law. Still, as the mother of Prince William, the future king, Diana was allowed to retain her most important title, Princess of Wales. So, Diana had been left with a diminished but still pretty fancy royal appellation, and she was financially well off. We're talking millions of pounds in the bank and a cushy flat in a palace. Still, she was accustomed to rather more than that. As a member of the House of Windsor, she had travelled on royal jets, accompanied by a small army of assistants, chefs, hairdressers, press handlers, etc, etc. As long as she had been a member of the House of Windsor, she was guaranteed to receive, quite literally, the royal welcome wherever she went. That meant free accommodation in the palaces and private residences of heads of state around the world. Throughout her marriage, Diana's shopping habits had become legendary. She was a fashion icon, and she could drop tens of thousands of pounds on a single spree at the most exclusive fashion houses of London, Paris, or Milan. In short, it is one thing to be wealthy, it is another thing to be rich, but it is another world to be royal. It is not a lifestyle that one gives up easily. If anyone could accommodate the lifestyle of a princess, it was Dodi Fayed. He was an international playboy, the son of a billionaire, the heir to a vast fortune. Dodi, aged 42, lived a life of almost unimaginable extravagance. His father, Mohammed Fayed, had built a hotel and retail empire which included London's iconic Harrods department store and the Paris Ritz Hotel. Diana and Dodi, who knew each other socially, started dating in the summer of 1997. Now, I do not want to disparage Diana's relationship with Dodi by implying that she was in it for his money, any more than I would say that he was in it for her royal cachet. They seemed to be genuinely into each other. Nonetheless, it was only a person of such extraordinary financial means as Dodi who could possibly have provided Diana with the lifestyle to which she had become accustomed. And Diana offered unique social status to the nouveau riche Fayeds. In the summer of 1997, Diana and her children joined the Fayed family on their mega-yacht in the Mediterranean. Believe it or not, Mohammed Fayed had purchased the yacht specifically for the visit of Princess Diana. Diana had endured so many dull and awkward vacations with the Windsors at their drafty Scottish summer retreat, Balmoral. How wonderful it must have been, instead, to cruise off the Côte d'Azur, jet-skiing with her sons and enjoying the apparently convivial and relaxed atmosphere of the Fayed clan. Dodie was besotted with Diana. This is quite understandable, as she was a very beautiful and glamorous woman, and of course, 
Though he had dated a slew of models and actresses, he was courting the Princess of Wales, the most famous woman on earth. And Diana, aged 36, but for the first time having a serious romantic relationship as a single woman, was delighted by the affection lavished on her by this charismatic scion of a billionaire family. Their whirlwind romance made front page news. Paparazzi photographers swarmed everywhere they went, all of them desperate for a juicy photo of an intimate moment, or even just Diana in a bikini. A single, well-taken shot of the princess might be worth a small fortune to a paparazzo, who could shop the image to newspapers across the world. The stakes were high, and the photographers were taking risks. The paparazzi and royal press corps would hire flimsy boats or ride pillion on jet skis, trying to get up close to the Fayed yacht. If Diana was ashore, the pack would jump onto mopeds or hang out of speeding cars, all scrambling to get that elusive photograph that could make them a small fortune. When a paparazzo took a snap of Diana in her swimsuit, with the slightest bump showing, well, the celebrity rags and trashy tabloids went into overdrive. While Diana was sunning herself in the Mediterranean with the Fayed family, her former in-laws had gathered in Balmoral. It is customary for the royal family to spend most of the month of August in the Scottish Highlands, partaking in all the usual country pursuits that rich people seem to enjoy. Fly fishing for salmon, stalking stags across the moorland, shooting whole flocks of overfed game birds, and generally trying not to get bitten to death by the accursed Scottish mosquito, the midgie. But that summer, the royals had other, rather more serious matters to attend to. The British monarchy was in crisis. Not since the abdication of Edward VIII in 1936 had the royal family been faced with such a dilemma. What was to be done about Diana? How could the House of Windsor regain the initiative? The Sunday Mirror newspaper revealed that the royal family had convened a special council to discuss the situation. At Balmoral, the Queen will preside over a meeting of the Way Ahead group, where the Windsors sit down with their senior advisors and discuss policy matters. MI6 has prepared a special report on the Egyptian Fayeds, which will be presented to the meeting. Prince Philip has let rip several times recently about the Fayeds, at a dinner party, during a country shoot, and while on a visit to close friends in Germany. He's been banging on about his contempt for Dodie, and how he is undesirable as a future stepfather to William and Harry. Diana has been told, in no uncertain terms, about the consequences should she continue the relationship with the Fayed family. The royal family may have decided that it's time to settle up. This report in a major British newspaper was published on the morning that Diana died, having gone to press just before the fatal car crash in Paris. It was of great concern to the royal family and the British establishment more generally that Diana would have had total financial independence if she married Dodie. In that case, it would make no difference if the Queen had, for example, taken away her Kensington Palace home as she had taken away Diana's HRH title. Diana would have been able to live anywhere, say or do anything, and there would have been nothing that the royal family or the British government could really do about it. Except, the royal family and the British government really don't like loose cannons rolling around the ship of state, and they're pretty adept at pushing them overboard. In a storm of speculation that Diana was pregnant and that Dodie was going to propose, the glamorous couple landed at an airport near Paris on August 30th, 1997. The couple deplaned from the Fayed family's private jet and climbed into a Mercedes limousine. Dodie's personal chauffeur whisked them towards Paris. The limo was tailed by another car, driven by a man named Henri Paul, 
who was the acting head of security at the Ritz Hotel, which was owned by the Fayads and which served as the family's base of operations in France. Henri Paul, aged 41, was an experienced security professional. At the Ritz, he was responsible for the safety of many high-profile guests, including royalty, film stars and captains of industry. He'd worked for the Fayads for over a decade and appeared to be very good at his job. Paul should not have been working that weekend. He had time off and had made plans to visit his family. But when he found out that Dodie was coming to Paris with Diana, the security officer cancelled his trip and reported to work. Later that night, Henri Paul would be behind the wheel of the car that crashed, killing his employer and the Princess of Wales. But as they drove to the centre of the city, his job was just to follow, watching out for the threats that surrounded them. Even on the short drive from the airport to the hotel, the paparazzi swarmed. The press had been waiting at the airport. Someone must have leaked the last-minute travel plans of Dodie and Diana. The chauffeur easily outmaneuvered the snapping photographers, weaving the hefty Mercedes limousine through the traffic. Even more paparazzi had gathered at the entrance to the Ritz, their cameras flashing furiously as the couple dashed from the limo to the foyer. It was 4.30pm when Diana and Dodie entered the imperial suite of the hotel. Soon after, Diana made a phone call to Richard Kay, the royal correspondent at the Daily Mail newspaper. A long-time confidant of the princess, Kay later revealed what she had told him. I have decided to radically change my life, Diana supposedly told the journalist. She reiterated her commitment to the anti-landmine campaign, but she said that she planned to withdraw from public life at the end of the year. Kay said that the princess seemed very happy, and he was certain that Diana and Dodie were in love. He did not speculate as to why Diana planned to withdraw from public life, but others certainly have, claiming it as further evidence that she was pregnant. After that phone call, Diana went to the hair salon in the hotel. Meanwhile, Dodie walked across the street to a high-end jewellery shop. There he picked up a diamond and emerald ring that he had previously ordered. Naturally, most people have speculated that this was to have been an engagement ring that he would present to Diana that night. Dodie had booked a table at Diana's favourite Parisian restaurant, and at 7pm the couple left the Ritz in their chauffeured Mercedes, planning to stop at Dodie's apartment on their way to the restaurant. At the same time, 7pm, Henri Paul knocked off work, leaving the Ritz Hotel for the next three hours. The paparazzi had amassed outside Dodie's apartment building. Clearly, yet again they had been tipped off about the couple's movements. It was a scrum, with bodyguards struggling to usher their charges into the building. Shaken by the intrusion of the press, Diana and Dodie recouped in his apartment. After a modest repast of champagne and caviar, the couple eventually headed out for dinner at 9.30pm. But the ubiquity of the paparazzi on the streets of Paris that night made Dodie nervous. He decided to change their plans. Instead of going to the restaurant, where he was certain they would get no peace, they went back to the Ritz. Again, the couple had to run the gauntlet of aggressively snapping photographers outside the hotel entrance, but once inside, they were on home turf. They went to the hotel's prestigious restaurant, but both of them had had a stressful night, and neither of them wanted to be on public display, even if it was in one of the most exclusive eateries in the world. Instead, the couple retired to the Imperial Suite, where they had their food delivered. Despite all the harassment by the press, they decided to stick to their plan to go back to Dodie's apartment to spend the night. If they thought that the paparazzi would buzz off, then they were sorely disappointed. With every mercenary photographer in Europe amassed in Paris, all screaming and elbowing to get a picture, it was a dead cert that the star couple would be relentlessly pursued wherever they went. 
Nevertheless, around 10pm, Dodi called his security team and instructed them to prepare to transport him and Diana from the relative privacy and safety of the Ritz, through the streets of Paris, back to his apartment. At this point, Henri Paul, the head of security at the Ritz, was called back in to work. When he arrived, Paul went to the hotel bar to speak to two of the bodyguards who were eating there. From the bar records we know that Paul had two mixed alcoholic drinks. Paul discussed the security arrangements with the bodyguards. Firstly, in order to avoid the paparazzi amassed at the main entrance to the hotel, Diana and Dodie would leave from the rear service door. Secondly, Paul stated that he alone would drive the couple to Dodie's apartment. This was a shock to the bodyguards because it went completely against security protocol. It was an ABC of the personal security handbook that a driver plus a bodyguard should travel in the vehicle with the VIPs, and then at least two additional bodyguards should follow in a separate vehicle. Trevor Rhys-Jones, who was in charge of Diana's security that night, later recalled his response to Henri Paul's travel arrangements. No fucking way are they leaving without a bodyguard. No way in a million years are they leaving without me. Paul was eventually persuaded. Rhys-Jones would ride with him in the car, but he would not agree to a second vehicle following them. Instead, Paul said that the second car should pull around to the front of the hotel. This was supposedly to fool the paparazzi into remaining there while Paul drove off with his charges, undetected, from the back of the hotel. And so, at 12.14am, Dodie and Diana left the Imperial Suite. By 12.19, they were hurrying through the lobby, the bulbs of a hundred cameras flashing at them from the entrance to the hotel. At 12.20am, they were in the back of the Mercedes limousine. Henri Paul drove off with one bodyguard, Trevor Rhys-Jones, riding shotgun. It seemed that at least one person had expected Dodie and Diana to leave from the rear of the hotel. Rhys-Jones later recalled that a small white car was waiting there, and it pulled off after them. Rhys-Jones assumed that this white car was an opportunistic paparazzo who'd had a hunch that Diana and Dodie might try to sneak out the back. It didn't take too long for the press pack at the front of the Ritz to realise that their quarry had bolted into the night. As a swarm, the paparazzi jumped into cars or mounted mopeds in order to catch up with the limo, then speeding towards Dodie's apartment. It seemed like the ruse had worked, the apartment was only about a five minute drive from the hotel, so there was a good chance that they could get there before the bulk of the media had caught up with them. But Henri Paul made a very strange decision. Rather than take the most direct route, which involved going along the wide, straight and very well-policed Champs-Élysées, Paul decided to take a longer route that involved heading onto the Course Albert a freeway that runs along the bank of the River Seine. This was doubly odd, firstly because the Champs-Élysées was the most obvious route, and secondly because even taking the detour onto the Course Albert, it would still have been better for Paul to have taken an off-ramp back towards Dodie's apartment, before reaching the Alma Tunnel, which would have led them even further away from their destination. But. At 12.23am, travelling at 64 miles per hour, as recorded by a speed camera, Henri Paul drove into the Alma Tunnel. A moment later, the limousine crashed into a concrete median barrier. Neither Diana nor Dodie were wearing their seatbelts. Dodie was killed instantly. Diana, thrown forward with enormous force, was horribly injured. Henri Paul was killed by the impact, while Reese Jones in the passenger seat, and also not wearing a seatbelt, sustained massive injuries but, almost miraculously, survived. Emergency technicians were quickly on the scene, though not as quick as the paparazzi. While the princess lay bleeding inside the car, 
photographers took their gruesome pictures. Diana, crumpled in the footwell, was carefully removed and whisked to hospital in an ambulance. Despite every effort to save her life, the injuries were too serious. She was pronounced dead at 4am. So, we have the timeline, as established by eyewitness accounts and CCTV footage taken at the Ritz Hotel and by the speed camera at the entrance to the Alma Tunnel. But there is other evidence that we must consider before we move into the realm of conspiracy. According to four separate witnesses, two French, one American and one British, all travelling along the Course Albert freeway at the time, a moped or motorcycle with a pillion passenger overtook the limousine carrying Diana and Dodie before it entered the tunnel. This conforms with the evidence of a fifth eyewitness who recalled seeing a motorbike speeding near the Mercedes. Another witness was driving his car further along the tunnel. He gave evidence to the French police about what occurred in the moment before the crash. I said to my wife that there must be some big shot behind us. In my rearview mirror, I saw a limousine in the middle of the tunnel with a motorcycle on its left with two people on it, which then swerved to the right directly in front of the car. As it swerved, there was a flash of light. It was an explosion of light, like a searchlight. But then I was heading out of the tunnel and heard, but did not see, the impact. I immediately pulled my car over to the curb, but my wife said, let's get out of here, it's a terrorist attack. We must take this account with a grain of salt. The man later sold a slightly different version of events to a tabloid newspaper, in which he claimed to have been closer to the crash. A crucial piece of evidence was provided by an off-duty French policeman. He stated that, not long before the crash, he saw a white Fiat Uno speeding along the Course Albert in the direction of the tunnel, but that the car had slowed down to a crawl just at the entrance. The policeman said that, at the time, he had assumed the Fiat had slowed down at the mouth of the tunnel in order to wait for another vehicle. Other witnesses of the crash claim to have seen the Mercedes swerving to avoid a car that appeared to be getting in its way. We know that, at some point, the Mercedes did clip the side of a white car, as paint fragments were discovered during a forensic examination of the limousine. Two weeks after the crash, French police confirmed that the white paint matched that used on Fiat Uno cars manufactured in Italy between 1983 and 1987. Inexplicably, there was no serious effort by the French police to pursue the driver of either the moped or the white Fiat that had been identified by numerous eyewitnesses. Based on witness testimony and speed camera footage, French police had instituted a search for these vehicles, however the search was confined to Paris and its surrounding suburbs, and it was called off quickly but a private investigation carried out in 1998 by former Scotland Yard Detective Superintendent John McNamara, acting on behalf of the Fayed family, did the work that the French police had failed to do. McNamara traced a car matching the exact details of the paint sample to a French gentleman by the name of James Andenson. Monsieur Andenson was one of the most successful paparazzi photographers in Europe, and had spent most of the summer of 1997 on the trail of Princess Diana. McNamara discovered that the Fiat had been sold by Andenson to a car dealer in October 1997. The car had undergone minor repairs and had been repainted. Presented with this finding, French police interviewed Andenson in February 1998. They asked him to account for his whereabouts on the night of the crash. Andenson was able to provide them with a gas station receipt and a motorway toll ticket from six months previously, which showed that he had been near his home in central France at around 4am on August 31st, 1997. Andenson said that he was driving north to Paris-Orly Airport that night to take a flight to Corsica. 
The receipts indicated that Anderson was hundreds of miles away from Paris at 4am on the morning Diana died, but they did not definitively establish that he was not in the city at 12.23am that night when the crash occurred. It seems unlikely that Andenson, perhaps the most successful paparazzo in France, would choose not to be in Paris on the night when Princess Diana was in the city, the night when there was wild speculation that Dodie would propose, and also that Diana might be pregnant. Most of Andenson's fellow paparazzi photographers had gathered in Paris that night, all of them looking for a shot of Diana that could make them tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yet Andenson, who had a flight leaving from Paris that morning anyway, was supposedly hundreds of miles away? French police, as well as the separate British investigation, accepted Andenson's account of his movements that night, and nothing further was said about the white Fiat Uno. In another highly questionable aspect of the official investigation, the Paris police allowed the Alma Tunnel to be cleaned and reopened within just six hours of the crash that killed Diana and Dodie. There had been a cursory examination of the crash site, carried out by the city's traffic police, but it is possible that evidence might have been lost as a result of the hasty reopening of the tunnel. Journalists and road traffic experts were surprised at this decision by the Paris police. Given the seriousness of the crash and the high profile of the victims, it would not have been unusual to block off the road for 24 hours to ensure that nothing was missed. French police also, strangely, turned down specialist assistance from the Mercedes-Benz Motor Company, who offered to send their engineers to examine the wreckage of the limousine to look for any technical deficiencies that might have contributed to the crash. Perhaps the most shocking aspect of the official actions in the aftermath of the crash was the manner in which the body of Diana was treated. Even before an autopsy had taken place, Diana was partially embalmed from the pelvis up. This was done on the orders of Sir Michael Jay, the British ambassador to France, who had received instructions from the Prince of Wales. It must firstly be noted that it's illegal to embalm or in any other way cosmetically tamper with a corpse without the permission of the deceased's next of kin. As Charles and Diana were divorced, he was no longer related to her. Therefore, such decisions should really have been made by Diana's mother or perhaps one of her siblings, but this was not the case. More fundamentally, the decision to embalm Diana before the autopsy meant that when the autopsy was performed, the procedure could not possibly provide a full, accurate account of the state of Diana's body at the time of her death. Given the widespread, though unverifiable, rumours at the time, the premature embalming has been the cause of much speculation as to whether authorities were trying to cover up Diana's pregnancy. An official narrative of the night's events was quickly established, but then changed. Firstly, the paparazzi were blamed for the tragedy. They were portrayed as having hounded Diana and Dodie, of having chased them, causing the accident in the tunnel. Several photographers were arrested by Paris police at the scene, but this initial account of what happened was quickly dropped. It was clear that the ruse at the Ritz Hotel, where Diana and Dodie slipped out the back, had allowed them to get ahead of most of the press pack. The only potential paparazzi activities in the moments before the crash would appear to have been a. The moped carrying two people that had overtaken the Mercedes and then swerved around it in the tunnel, and b. The mysterious white Fiat Uno. But French police and their British counterparts expressed little interest in pursuing what might have happened to either of these vehicles. So, blame for the crash soon fell squarely on the driver of the Mercedes, Henri Paul. Reports were leaked to the media, claiming that the speed camera had caught Paul driving at 90 and then 120 miles per hour. Other leaks claimed that Paul was drunk, supposedly with the equivalent of more than two bottles of wine in his system, and that he was heavily medicated. 
These leaks, which apparently came from within the Paris Police Department, were simply untrue. In fact, when the official story did come out a few days after the crash, it was revealed that Paul had been driving at an unexceptional 64 miles per hour when the Mercedes entered the tunnel. Police also reported that Paul was over the drink driving limit. Traces of drugs were also identified, though probably not in a quantity to impair anyone's driving. But the media narrative had already been set. Henri Paul was out of control, wasted, and driving like a maniac when he hit the concrete barrier in the Alma Tunnel. He had been established in the public mind as the villain of that night's tragedy. But it doesn't quite stack up so neatly. A blood test carried out on Paul's body following the crash showed that he was 3.5 times over the French drinking limit. For a man of Henri Paul's age and build, that means he must have consumed at least three alcoholic drinks within an hour of the crash. Either that, or he must have been exceedingly drunk from the period before that. However, we know, thanks to CCTV footage from inside the Ritz, that Paul, who had come back on duty at 10pm, did not have any alcoholic beverages after the two mixed drinks he had purchased while talking with Trevor Reese jones in the hotel bar. The footage recorded at the Ritz shows Paul behaving quite normally, moving steadily and no way showing any signs of inebriation. No members of the security team stated that Paul showed any signs of being intoxicated that night, and, presumably, his boss, Dodi Fayed, would have objected to Paul driving him and Diana if there was any sign that he was drunk. Of course, it is not unreasonable to say that Henri Paul might indeed have been intoxicated when he got behind the wheel of the Mercedes, and that he had simply been able to keep it together so that nobody noticed. Yet, there is a serious issue with his blood sample, which raises further questions, to say the least, about the reliability of the alcohol test. Again, it is thanks to the independent investigation by ex-Scotland Yard detective, John McNamara, that we know about a serious fault in this key piece of forensic evidence. McNamara obtained a copy of the pathology report, which showed that there was an extraordinarily high level of carbon monoxide in Henri Paul's blood. The sample taken from Paul's corpse showed that he had between 12% and 20% carbon monoxide saturation in his bloodstream. Bear in mind, there would have been a natural decrease in the amount of carbon monoxide in Paul's system in the hours between his body being removed from the car and the blood sample being taken at the morgue. Given that fact, the rate of carbon monoxide in his blood could have been as high as 30% in the hour before the crash. At that level, he would have been unable to drive. In fact, such a high saturation of carbon monoxide in his system could have been fatal. The pathologist's notes suggested that this massive level of carbon monoxide was caused by the fact that Paul was a smoker and that carbon monoxide from the Mercedes airbag might have been breathed in by Paul in the moment before his death. But this is nonsense. Firstly, Mercedes-Benz has stated categorically that their airbags do not contain carbon monoxide. And even heavy smokers might only have 8% carbon monoxide in their blood. There was no way Paul could have absorbed carbon monoxide into his bloodstream from the exhaust fumes within the tunnel. He died instantly. His heart and lungs ceased to function long before any build-up from the air could have taken place. Furthermore, there were no signs of excessive carbon monoxide in the blood samples from the other people in the car. The level of carbon monoxide supposedly present in Paul's blood was in line with a suicide victim, such as someone who had run a hose from the exhaust of their car into the interior. According to one whistleblower in the Paris Police Department, there was just such a suicide on that night. That suicide was allegedly committed by a man who had consumed half a bottle of vodka and killed himself in his car. The body was taken to the Paris morgue and would have been given a post-mortem, just as Paul's body had been. The implication is that the blood sample was taken not from Henri Paul's body, but from the suicide victim. 
Superintendent McNamara requested a DNA test on the blood sample taken from Paul's body to confirm that it was actually his, but French authorities point-blank refused. So, we have now established the timeline of the night of the crash and some of the key facts. We have also looked at claims of inconsistencies and irregularities in the police investigation and the forensic evidence. It is possible that the crash was caused by Henri Paul, who, intoxicated and making strange decisions, quite simply crashed the car. It is possible that it was all just a simple, terrible accident, caused by a mixture of poor judgement and irresponsible behaviour. That is the official narrative, and I come neither to praise nor to bury that established account of events in Paris on August 31st, 1997. But we must examine the most commonly accepted alternative narrative of that night's events. Largely based on John McNamara's investigation on behalf of the Fayed family, this alternative account claims that the crash that killed Diana and Dodie was no accident. Rather, they were murdered in a conspiracy involving the French authorities and Britain's MI6. Henri Paul was not only a security official at the Ritz Hotel, but he was an asset of both the French and British intelligence agencies. As a person with access to some of the richest and most powerful people in the world staying at the exclusive Paris Hotel, Paul would have been a very useful person for any intelligence agency. This connection with intelligence agencies was confirmed in 2006 by a British inquiry into the death of Diana, which had been established to look into the many inconsistencies in the initial investigations. The 2006 inquiry received confirmation from the French government that Paul had worked with the French DST security agency, the equivalent of Britain's MI5, as well as the DGSE, the French version of MI6. In addition, a former British MI6 agent named Richard Tomlinson stated that he had seen Henri Paul's personal file back in 1992 during an operation to smuggle Soviet military technology out of the former USSR, an operation that had involved setting up meetings in Paris. Of course, Paul would have been paid for these services. After his death, it was discovered that Paul, whose salary at the Ritz was approximately $40,000 a year, had 15 separate bank accounts and combined total assets of $340,000. In addition to his salary, he would have received generous tips from wealthy hotel guests, supplementing his relatively modest income. However, that cannot account for the majority of his savings. During the official investigation into his finances, the British Metropolitan Police uncovered that Paul had amassed the equivalent of approximately $250,000 in seven of his bank accounts over the course of several years. Much of this money had been deposited in the form of bank drafts, i.e. not paychecks from his employer or cash tips from hotel guests. The British police also discovered that Paul had deposited $8,000 in the weeks leading up to the death of Diana, far in excess of his salary. Police discovered over 12,000 francs, or $2,500, in Paul's pocket at the time of the crash. Yet, his mobile phone was missing, even though there is evidence that he had the phone in his possession earlier that night. The absence of the phone has been accounted for with claims that an emergency worker might have taken it after Paul's body was cut from the wreckage of the car. Maybe, but the substantial sum of money remained in his pocket. Paul's phone was never recovered. The record of who he might have been in communication with that night was lost. Henri Paul was on the payroll of multiple intelligence agencies and he may very well have had contact with them in the lead-up to the crash. McNamara also claimed that there were several intelligence operatives in and around the Ritz Hotel all day on Saturday 30th of August. His team went through CCTV footage and identified several people exhibiting classic behaviour of a police or intelligence surveillance officer. 
alert, unobtrusive, not really doing anything and hanging around for a long time, moving on and then being replaced by someone else who began doing the same thing. McNamara, an experienced British police officer, recognised similar behaviour by several people waiting outside the hotel that night. They were clearly not just gawping tourists or curious locals, but police or intelligence operatives, moving around the edge of the mob of paparazzi, being observant, but not taking any photos. There is no account of what Henri Paul did in the three hours between 7pm and 10pm. Nobody recalled seeing him. The fact that his phone disappeared makes it impossible to say who he might have called. But given his known association with the intelligence agencies, and the clear signs that there were intelligence operatives around the Ritz Hotel that night, Paul might have been in contact with a handler during this time. In proposing that he alone should drive Diana and Dodie from the Ritz to the apartment, Paul, an experienced security professional, broke every rule in the VIP security handbook. McNamara suggests that Paul, having been given instructions by his British or French handlers, deliberately broke with security protocol in order to get Diana and Dodie alone. According to this theory, Paul had received instructions to take an unusual route that led not directly to Dodie's apartment, but to the Alma Tunnel. Trevor Rhys-Jones, the bodyguard, insisted on travelling in the limo. His injuries in the crash were devastating. He suffered from head trauma and lost most of the skin from his face. He has said that he remembers nothing of the drive from the Ritz to the Alma Tunnel. The last thing he can remember was pulling away from the rear of the hotel, with a small white car following them. We know from multiple witnesses that a white Fiat Uno was present at the entrance to the Alma Tunnel, and we know from the scrape on the Mercedes that it had made contact with a white Fiat Uno. According to McNamara, this vehicle was idling there in order to deliberately get in the way of the limousine carrying Diana and Dodie, perhaps to force the driver to take emergency measures. McNamara identified paparazzi photographer James Anderson as owning an identical car. Though Anderson claimed not to have been in Paris at the time, it's pretty clear that he had every reason to be in the city that night. McNamara has posited that Anderson was in fact present, and that he, like Henri Paul, might have been a sometime asset of one or more intelligence agency. The McNamara investigation also came to the conclusion that a moped, identified by multiple witnesses, was involved in the crash. As with the white Fiat, Paris police never fully investigated its possible role. One witness said he saw a moped overtake the Mercedes inside the tunnel, and then there was a very, very bright flash of light just before the crash. This witness account is questionable, as the man later juiced up his story in order to sell it to a tabloid newspaper. But a sudden burst of light could very well account for the crash. Henri Paul had been forced to swerve to avoid the Fiat Uno. Inside the dark tunnel, an intense flash, such as from a powerful camera bulb, or even a strobe light, could easily have blinded and disoriented him, causing him to lose control of the Mercedes. According to Richard Tomlinson, this would have been a page right out of the MI6 playbook. Tomlinson quit the service in 1995 and then wrote an account of his experiences. He said that he'd left MI6 and become a whistleblower in order to draw attention to the casual and cavalier attitude that many MI6 officers have to British and international law. Tomlinson has written the MI6 had developed a plan to assassinate Slobodan Milosevic, the former president of Serbia, in a staged car crash in 1992. This was at the time of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, when Serbia and its neighbours were at war. The MI6 operation was to take place during international talks in Switzerland. Apparently the plan was to disorientate Milosevic's chauffeur using a blinding strobe light 
as he drove into a tunnel near Geneva. Sound familiar? The Milosevic plan was never put into action, but it was clearly a technique that MI6 could, and would, use. The death of Henri Paul would have been mere collateral damage in such an operation. As a low-level asset, he would have been considered entirely expendable. Well, that's the theory anyway. The most well-researched, unofficial narrative. And if any facet of it is true, then it casts, at the very least, a pretty dark shadow over the death of Princess Diana. Or, as Stamper might have said in House of Cards, it is very unwise for a princess to cross the British establishment. In the summer of 1997, while Diana was being courted by Dodi in the Mediterranean, there were real fears among the powers that be about what to do with Diana. The Queen Mother had reportedly expressed her concern that Diana posed a far greater danger to the future of the royal family than the 1930s abdication scandal of Edward VIII. The death of Diana put paid to the fear that another rival court might be established in Britain, throwing the entire hierarchical and constitutional system off kilter. But her passing also exposed the royal family to a tsunami of public feeling, much of it hostile. Speaking to the media on the day of Diana's death, then Prime Minister Tony Blair declared that Britain was mourning for the People's Princess. In a telephone conversation with Bill Clinton shortly after Diana's death, Blair expressed his concerns about the monarchy at this time. He told the US President that because Diana was so popular with the people, it gave her problems with the royal establishment. Later, Blair would recollect the strange national mood in the week between the crash and Diana's funeral at Westminster Abbey. I was worried about the strength of feeling in the country, that the royal family was in some way out of touch with public opinion, and it was a very difficult moment for the monarchy. But the monarchy survived. They're nothing if not resilient. The Windsors made a huge mistake in not realising what an asset they had in Diana. They could have claimed the most famous, glamorous and popular woman in the world as their own. Her star power was the most valuable jewel in their crown. Maybe because they didn't see it, or simply because they didn't have the emotional wherewithal to embrace her, the royal family marginalised Diana, squandered her talents, and treated her very shabbily. Maybe Diana found happiness in the last months of her life, with Dodie, a man she really loved. It seemed that the future ahead of her was bright, free from the Windsor clan that she had grown to hate. Royalist or not, it's hard not to feel sorry that this chance for happiness was snatched away from a woman who had gone through most of her life feeling unwanted by those closest to her. Perhaps, in the end, Diana got her dearest wish. Her beloved sons have grown up in a way that, I suspect, she would have been very proud of. They champion the causes that were so dear to her. They seem to be, at least by the peculiar standards of the British royal family, reasonably well-adjusted people. And they, like Diana, seem to have breathed some life into the ancient institution of the monarchy. Let's leave the last word on Diana to Ken Worf, who served for many years as the personal protection officer for the princess and her children. Earl Spencer had said in his eulogy that Diana was every inch a real woman, not some iconised image. True, she loved her image and hated it when she was not in the newspapers or when a picture showed her in maybe not the best light. In fact, she was as vain as most of us are. Someone who really cared about what she looked like and how she appeared to other people. She could laugh at herself, though, 
something that perhaps showed that, at heart, she had as much humility as vanity. Which is why, in the end, she would not have wanted millions of people, especially the ordinary people with whom she empathised so much, to mourn for her. Thank you for tuning in to this, the second part of our episode on Princess Diana. We have very special bonus material to accompany this episode, available to our Patreon supporters. It's a supplement that we've recorded, in which we go into some of the other theories about the death of Diana. In it, we'll look into the string of break-ins in the aftermath of the crash, all targeting people with a link to the princess and we will look at the horrific fate of James Andenson, the paparazzo accused of being involved in the crash. If you go to assassinationspodcast.com, then you'll find a link to our Patreon page. Thanks, as always, to Graham Ronald for creating our theme music. Lindsay Morse edited and designed the sound for this episode. Research and writing was done by me, Neil Cooper. This is the last episode of our first season. It's been so enjoyable to do the podcast. And it's been wonderful to hear from our listeners. You've sent us so many messages of support, which are very, very much appreciated. We're going to take a break before we come back with season two of the podcast. We'll take some time to chill and then to research more assassinations for you. I can reveal that Season 2 will be focused on the deadly world of rival spy agencies and the ruthless measures that they take. Tentatively, we're calling the season Spy vs. Spy. Fear not, we're going to give you an assassination fix during the break. We plan to put out a couple of mini-episodes over the next few weeks. So, thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. Bye-bye.